Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Dave Whale, the author of Exhale, Hope, Healing, and Life in Transplant. Exhale is the riveting memoir of a top transplant doctor who rode the emotional roller coaster of saving and losing lives until it was time to step back and reassess his own life. A young father with a rare form of lung cancer who has been turned down for a transplant by several hospitals, a kid who was considered not smart enough to be worthy of a transplant, a young mother dying on the waiting list in front of her two small children a father losing his oldest daughter after a transplant goes awry. The nights waiting for donor lungs to become available, understanding that someone needed to die so that another patient could live. These are some of the stories in Exhale, a memoir about Dr. Wales' 10 years spent directing the lung transplant program at Stanford. Through these stories, he shows not only the miracle of transplantation, but also how it is a very human endeavor performed by people with strengths and weaknesses, powerful attributes, and profound flaws. Exhale is an inside look at the world of high-stakes medicine, complete with the decisions that are confronted, the mistakes that are made, and the story of a transplant doctor's slow recognition that he needed to step away from the front lines. This book is an exploration of holding on too tight, of losing one's way, and the power of another kind of decision to leave behind everything for a fresh start. Well, David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. All right. So as we're going through these really unprecedented and difficult times uh, during the pandemic, I would like to start the interview by asking, how has it affected you and your work? Well, my, my main responsibility right now is to do transplant consulting work. So I help transplant programs that are struggling from either a clinical, administrative, or financial perspective. And typically, I would be traveling to the programs that I work with. But in the pandemic days, there's less travel, of course, and a lot more video conferencing. So I've found that I can do a lot of the work via video conference. So that's, that's been a big change. And in fact, it's, it's, it's really gone very well. So I'm curious after the pandemic uh, is over, whether or not uh, I just maintain that same kind of cadence to my job. Excellent. Are there any other ways that you adapted uh, to coping with the current regulations? Well, I think that um, transplant programs specifically have had a number of challenges during the COVID period, whether it be 
how to manage donors, um, keeping recipients uh, well on the waiting list because they have lung disease, and also what to do about vaccinations um, and what to do about COVID infections in transplant recipients. So there's been a whole new area of transplant medicine that is derived from the COVID crisis. And I think we're learning more and more about the impact on COVID, of COVID on the transplant uh, practice. We've learned a lot since the spring, uh, and I think that we're, we're in better and better shape really to continue on with uh, normal transplant activity at this point. No, that's great to hear. And actually, that's something I was wondering about, uh, about the lung transplantation specifically in COVID, because it seemed to affect uh, lungs quite, uh, quite um, um, sort of much worse than other maybe parts of the body. So have there any been, uh, been any transplants, lung transplants because of COVID? Maybe you're aware of? Yeah, there have been. So there's been a number of centers that have just transplanted a, a, a patient or two with, with COVID. Uh, some have done a, a little bit more than that, but mostly it's one or two patients. And the patients are really dividing themselves, I think, into two groups. I think they're going to be the acutely sick COVID patients. So they have COVID pneumonia. They require mechanical ventilation and or ECMO. And we get called um, in the transplant world to salvage, uh, uh, do a salvage transplant, essentially. So in order, in order for that patient to live, they would require a transplant. So those patients are difficult because they are so acutely ill. They've been in the ICU for a number of weeks and have nutritional and rehabilitation challenges. The second group of patients that we're just starting to see now are those patients that have fully recovered from COVID pneumonia, but who have scarring of their lungs. So they've developed the post-ARDS pulmonary fibrosis. And so they've got scarring of the lungs, they've got oxygenation difficulties, and they've got lung function abnormalities. And I do think that in the coming months, we're going to end up transplanting a good number of those kinds of as well. Interesting. I'm glad to hear that COVID uh, diagnosis itself, it's not uh, exempt, um, exempting patients from getting the transplants. No, no it's not. And, you know, of course, we're going to be sure, be sure that the patients are not actively infected. But if, if they meet the other criteria, you know, that is that they're nutritionally doing fine. They can actually walk in rehab. They don't have any other organ systems that are impacted. Some of these patients are going to end up being very good transplant candidates, and I think we'll do well. That's the early experience, at least. So I'm gratified by that. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So I uh, grew up in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. I went to undergraduate and medical school at Tulane. I then developed an interest in pulmonary medicine and, in fact, in the early 1990s, got interested in lung transplantation. And my interest in lung transplantation seemed to coincide when the country was starting to do their first transplants. And I was at the University of Colorado, the National Jewish Hospital affiliate, and 
the lung transplant program was new. So I was, I was on the ground floor of the development, I think, of you know, lung transplant practices and protocols. And what happened is, is that I started working in the field when we were all figuring it out. It wasn't quite experimental at that time, but it was such a new field that it was exciting because we all were trying to figure out, you know, how, how it was all going to work out. Um, the patients mm. didn't didn't do as well back then as they as they do now because I think we've learned so much in the you know 30, 30 years, nearly thirty years since I got involved in it. So it, that's been gratifying. But one interesting story is my interest in transplant really happened because I got pulled into the kidney transplant world when I was an intern. One of the upper level residents got sick. And so they needed a volunteer to do some of the more menial tasks on the kidney transplant service. And there I was, so I volunteered. And this was, this was before lung transplant was even a thing. So I volunteered for the kidney transplant service and ended up being amazed, as I still am, by uh, transplant medicine. I, th- I think it continues to fascinate. So I moved over from kidneys to lungs and uh, have never looked back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Were you always interested in science and medicine? Yeah, I, I was. I, um, I worked in hospitals when I was in high school and college in New Orleans where I grew up. There was a local hospital that would hire summer people like me. And, you know, we did all kinds of different tasks. We moved patients from one location in the hospital to the other. We helped with, you know, baths and running labs to the uh, blood blood work to the laboratories and and things like that. So I was always around the hospital. Uh, My my father was a physician as well. And, you know, we, we were always, you know, a medical family. My mom's a nurse and medicine was sort of something that we talked about a lot. And I got, I got around it in working in the hospital when I was in high school. So I, yeah, I always wanted to be a physician. Did you have any mentors that uh, inspired you? Yeah. I mean, the first one was my father, really. I mean, he was a lung Mm. physician that I ended up being a lung physician. He, he was more of a research physician, whereas I, tended to the clinical a lot more than the research, uh, much to the chagrin of the people in academics that I work with. Um, I was not um, what I would call the classical physician scientist. I was much more of a bedside clinician. And so transplant generally, as you probably know, happens in academic institutions. And I would write papers about my clinical experience, but didn't, was not a bench scientist by any stretch of the imagination. I was more of a clinical doctor. So my career path really gravitated toward running transplant programs. I think that my interest was in, in trying to make transplant pro- programs function properly um, and there's a there's usually a team of people 50 or 60 people working on a transplant program and they all have to work together 
Mm. We have to look, look for efficiencies. It's, it's very much a team sport. So when I was in the hospital, I was focused mostly on building transplant programs. And now in my consulting business, I'm basically doing the same thing. I'm helping transplant programs perform better. So it's been a good niche for me. Excellent. So how, uh, how did you come to writing the book, uh, Exhale, and why now was a good time? Well, in 2016, I left Stanford. I had been in California for a long time. I had been away from New Orleans for 27 years. And basically, my family, both my immediate family and my extended family, was ready for a change. I was ready for a change professionally. We were ready for a change in location, even though we very much liked living in California. We, we thought it was the right time uh, to mm. move back to New Orleans. My oldest daughter was going into high school and my youngest daughter into middle school, so we thought it was a good time to move. My interest in writing really has been longstanding. While, while I was at Stanford, I would take writing courses at night and very much tried to improve my ability to express what I was thinking. And so when I left Stanford in 2016, I had a lot on my mind. I, I had experienced what I thought was something quite profound. I had seen a lot of things in the hospital, um, miracles really, um, you know, in the transplant world. I was feeling a lot of different emotions from having done that kind of work. And I felt like I wanted to write it down. So I started in 2016 doing that. And it really only after about six months, I had a first, the first draft of the book. And any writer will tell you the first draft is not the, not the final draft. And so um, I spent the next uh, couple of years really um, working off of that first draft to try to improve it as much as I can. So that's, uh, that's how I came to write it. Yeah, for sure. And you can uh, really see the excellent and clear prose uh, uh, in the book. It's really easy to read, which sometimes can be a bit of an issue, especially when talking about scientific uh, uh, topics. So uh, for the scientific part, can you explain what is the organ transplantation process? which appears to be quite complex. It is. It's, it's got a lot of moving parts to it. So when you break it down quite simply, you know, patients come to see us after they've had a identification of a transplantable disease. So their, their referring physician identifies that they've got a transplantable disease and they might be a transplant candidate. They then come see us and we put them through a series of tests that evaluate both from a medical and a psychosocial standpoint whether or not there would be a good chance of success with the transplant. After all of that, that information is collected and we bring the patient's medical data and psychosocial data to what's called a selection meeting where a group of physicians, surgeons, nurses, social workers, all sorts of different people on the team come together and decide whether or not somebody's a transplant candidate or not. And if we decide they're a candidate, they go on the waiting list. And the waiting list period is probably one of the most interesting ones in our business because it can happen anytime. 
it can happen mm. first at first hour after we put a patient on the waiting list, or it can happen a year from then. So I think psychologically, the waiting period is the most difficult for the patients. I, I think it's also for, for me, it was always a period of turmoil because I wanted to make sure that we got everybody transplanted off the waiting list so they would have a chance. And then once the transplant happened, you know, we had to send a team out to procure the organs and bring them back to our hospital. And then the surgical team would put the organs in. And then the multidisciplinary team that I led would then take care of the patient from the moment they got out of surgery for the rest of their life. And that involved giving immunosuppressive drugs and monitoring their effects and using infectious disease agents uh, to prevent infections. And we became really the primary care doctors for the patients we transplanted. So we had a very specific role in those patients' lives. We were, we were essentially their their medical team. And the gratifying part of that is the close relationships that we developed with the patients we took care of. Um, these are extremely close relationships and that's good because it's so rewarding, but bad when the patients don't do well after a transplant, it's, you know, very emotionally difficult, I think for the transplant team. So that's the process really in a nutshell. Yeah, uh, so beyond your book, my understanding of the process uh, of the trans transplantation was really rudimentary, and I would say maybe primarily based on early TV shows where there's some sort of accident and oof, the heart pops up in the biohazard box, high, high cost to delivery man's arm. So do the things happen this way at all? Or Yeah, I mean, it's still most, you know, most of... Um the donors that that we get are cadaveric or brain dead donors they're uh happening as a result of accidents but still in, in our country only about half of the people that get asked to donate actually do donate their organs so we still have mm. a, a gap between the people that could donate and the people that actually do And that's, you know, that, that takes a lot of education and a lot of hard work to get uh, people to donate more frequently. And I think that one of the difficulties I think transplant is facing right now is the allocation system that's in place. How, how do you distribute the organs? How do we do this efficiently so that we use all of the organs that are available to us? That's a big challenge. That's a big challenge. I think right now we're doing it okay. I don't think we're doing it great. I don't think we're doing it as well as we could. I think that at the moment it requires transplant programs to fly out in the middle of the night and they have to be ready 24-7, 365 days a year. And that puts mm. quite, a, quite a strain on the transplant team because – These teams, generally speaking, aren't very big. And the physicians and surgeons that do the transplant work have other patients to care for that are non-transplant patients. So I, want, I, I dream about a system that would 
decompressed the transplant program so that they weren't entirely responsible for going to procure the organs each night. So what would be uh, the first uh, practical step that uh, should be taken to, uh, towards this goal? Well, so one company that I work with in particular, and there are, there are other companies as well, have developed, has developed an organ care system. In other words, a system that keeps the organs alive and they keep mm. them alive long enough so that logistical considerations can be overcome. So in other words, if a transplant team can't make it to hospital B, at a certain time, perhaps we can move to a system where the organs are kept alive long enough so that either the, hosp- the hospital team would be available at that point, or I think even better, the organs would be procured by somebody outside of the transplant hospital that could then send the organs using these new devices, these you know this improved technology to the transplant hospital so that the burden of procuring organs wouldn't fall entirely on the transplant hospital but that's we're not there quite yet um, we've got we've got a ways to go I think in, in in getting that kind of system in place but that's what I would I would envision would be the ultimate goal yes and I'm really hoping that people are really gonna get interested in it because it's something that can affect anyone can it it really can. You know, there's, you know, in the United States, there's around 40,000 transplants done each year. I, I don't have the worldwide figure off the top of my head, but it's it's a big number. And it, also in the United States, there's 120,000 people waiting at any one time mm. for, for a transplant. So if you multiply that also with the family members and friends of, of the uh, transplant recipient, we're talking about quite a quite a large number of people that that transplantation involves. So to make the system better, I think is in is in a lot of people's interest, and I I, I hope I see that. Yeah, that's really hope, hopeful note. <laughs> All right. So, can you guide us through your career journey? So, how did you first get interested in lungs after the kidneys? <laughs> yeah. So so basically. Um, I come from a sports background. I was always interested in breathing and lungs. And I got interested really from a sports physiology standpoint. And mm. that happened earlier on in my career. And when I decided to take extra training in, in pulmonary medicine, I then started out doing research from a sports physiology standpoint. And then Lo and behold, the transplant program in Denver was just taking off when I got there. And one of my early mentors was a physician named Marty Zamora, who was doing the lung transplant work. He was the only one there doing it. And he was doing the lung transplant work with a surgeon named Fred Grover, who was recruited from San Antonio to come to Denver to start the lung transplant program. And so really it became a small group of us that were interested in lung transplant, you know, when it was taking off, right, at its inception. And I, I left my training period wanting to do lung transplant, but also wanting to build programs. And so I started on a career path where I would get the opportunity 
at a, at a pretty young age, I was, I think, 31 or so when I, or 32, when I first started running my um, very first lung transplant program. And I got interested in the process of how you build together a team of people to get the, get the transplants done the most efficiently. And, you know, that's been my whole career focus, really, is, you know, when I got to Stanford, the program was not in very good shape at that time for a variety of reasons. And how, how do you put a team together that can ensure success, not only in increasing the numbers of transplants that are done, but also increasing the quality outcomes? And we were able to do that over the period there, and that was very gratifying. So I, I am glad at this stage of my career that I've had that experience because then I can actually go talk to other transplant programs and see if we can replicate that at other centers. And, and it's, wor- it's worked. So that's, that's, a, that's a good, good thing. It's good for patients. Yes, and that, that work required uh, quite uh, good people management skills. And were you always uh, so uh, um, sort of socially savvy? Well, I, I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the transplant work has been very much like a sports team. And I came from a sports mm. background when I when I was younger. I was on every sports team, <laughs> and I um, I continued on with that sort of same mindset. It was, it was very much like a sports team going in for the big game, is how I looked at it, at least. And I think that transplant teams that do well, you know, it's, it's very, they like each other, basically. And I see it across mm. the country when I work with programs. They get along. They do things socially together. They like being around each other. And when I look back on my career, I look back at the times, and this would be most of my career, when the team got along really well. And we did really well for the patients. And then there were times, and this was not very frequently, thank God, where the team didn't get along very well. And we generally didn't do very well with, with the patients at that stage. And so it, it taught me how important it is to have that team mindset when you're doing something like this. It's not a, it's not one person going into the hospital to do their job. You really count on the entire team to do its job if it's going to be successful. So that's been a big, a big lesson in my transplant experience at least. Oh, for sure. And that is something that is not trivial at all, especially having such an inter- interdisciplinary uh, group of people. So maybe you have one or two points of advice on how to sort of bring people together. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the most important thing, I think, is to make sure, and we did this in our team meetings, is make sure that everybody's opinion is heard. So mm. whether it's a physician, it's a nurse, social worker, pharmacist, dietitian, respiratory therapist. What we did at Stanford was everybody gets a chance to talk and everybody gets a chance to say what they think about the patient. And so I would actually, when I was leading those meetings, would call on people. Joe, what do you think? Mary, what do you think? 
and mm. talk and make sure that everybody felt that they were all, if they had an opinion about the patient, it was going to be heard by the team. And I think that that was, I was, I was, that was the most important thing that we did. And then I think the other thing that we did well is we started meeting, we started um, devoting time for social activities. So we would, we would go out somewhere and have drinks or we would have dinner or we would have a Christmas party or we would have something. We would have a mm. retreat. We would have a retreat where we would go get away from the hospital, spend a day or two just talking about stuff. And I think that that's also really important is to get away from the work environment and get to know each other. I think, again, if you look at transplant programs that don't do very well, and it's probably true of any corporation or company or a team of any sort, they don't know each other very well. And I think that that's especially a real problem now when everybody is so busy, number one. And number two, the pandemic has made it so that we really can't get together. So we're... We, we tend not to know each other as well. And I, I don't think that that's a good thing for a transplant team at all. Yes, and perhaps I would like to add also the scientific team, scientific groups, the same thing. Uh, if, uh, yeah. yeah, and, you know, and, and, and that's an important point because I think mm. what, was it, what was interesting, what has been interesting is that transplant crosses over from the clinical teams to the scientific teams that are studying various things. And we would, we would interact with those folks because we would tell them the clinical problem. They would tell us what they could do from a research perspective. And that, that interaction turned out to be meaningful and fruitful ultimately in terms of getting good research done and published in the literature that I think has had an impact. So, um, my friends who are more in the research arena than I am and who run laboratories and things like that tell me it's exactly the same in a lab environment. You know, it's a, it's a team of people and I think the same principles would apply. Mm, yeah. And you get the best results uh, with the very close knit teams uh, overall rather than yeah. um, sort of individual, uh, uh, you know, trying, trying to gain uh, rather than, uh, for, for the good of, of the group. Makes right, sense. so apart from this uh, scientific, really fascinating, but really complex part, there's a lot of uh, human uh, uh, parts in your book as well. So you have several stories, which you describe very, very well. And can you tell me maybe a couple that affected you uh, most throughout years were, that were most memorable to you? Yeah, I, I think the, the early ones that were most memorable to me were the stories that involved patients who the medical field had given up on. And mm. two, exa two examples that I write about in the book were first a young man who was developmentally delayed, had some uh, intellectual challenges, and was considered not smart enough, quote unquote, to get a transplant. Mm. There were people at other transplant centers who felt like 
He wouldn't be able to take his medications properly. He couldn't be counted on to show up for clinic visits. And he was turned down. And there were even people on the transplant team I was working on at the time that thought, he's just not up, up for it. So long story short, we ended up taking a risk on somebody that everyone else had turned their back on, yet he was still a human being with real feelings and, and a real desire to live. And he was only 19 mm. years old. So we transplanted him and I had to convince the rest of the team that it was the right thing to do, but we ended up transplanting him and he lived for 21 years after his transplant, had a very fruitful life. And you know, we were in touch up until the time he passed away, which is fairly recently. And then the other story that I think is meaningful is another guy who had a diagnosis of cancer, lung cancer. It's called bronchoalveolar carcinoma. It's a rare tumor in the lung that's confined to the lung that I had had some experience transplanting. So essentially, mm. same, same story. All the other centers had turned this guy down. He came to Stanford to get his uh, evaluation because he knew that I had had some experience doing it. I convinced the team that it was the right thing to do, although there was some reluctance, which I, which I understood. And we ended up transplanting him as well. And he's gone on to have a very fruitful life and is still alive today and had two, two young children. And I get a Christmas card from him every year and he uh, has, has gone on to live a very meaningful life. So the stories that stick with me the most are the ones when, you know, people have given up on an individual and I, 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 I try to find a way if, if we can to get those people transplanted because I know how important it is to, to, you know, to save them and send them back to their family. So those have been really meaningful, but you know, not all the stories I talk about in the book, as you probably you know, know from having seen the book, is, you know, there's, there's stories that don't work out as well, and those are crushing. Mm. You know, um, those are emotionally very difficult for the team. I took it very personally when patients that we transplanted didn't do well. Uh, you know, I obviously was trying to make sure that we did everything we could. We did it, we did it the best we could. And I spent a lot of team, a lot of time examining that, both in myself and the team, about whether or not when we had a bad outcome, was it due to, you know, just the nature of the business, or was it due to something that we could have prevented? And you know, it's that that's a that's a tough conversation to have with a team, especially if you think that the you know the death was preventable. It's a very difficult conversation. Yes, and what roles did the families of patients uh, play to, um, in those cases and interactions you know, with them? Yeah, the, you know, the family mm. interactions were some of the most meaningful of my career, especially with the younger people that we transplanted, especially in the cystic fibrosis population that generally impacted people that were, let's just say, 25 years of age, roughly, or 30 at the most. And their parents were usually involved and they had brothers and sisters and they were young people with a lot of friends. And I ended up being, you know, the doctor to not only the 25 year old, but also to the parents. And I ended up developing a very close relationship with the parents because many of them 
were close to my age, you know, roughly my age, um, whereas the 25-year-old is not, not near my age anymore. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting pretty close with the, with the parents of the people that we transplanted because if you think about it, having a sick child, uh, it, you know, it, is really tough. I mean, and they've been, these parents had been dealing with sick children since the child was two, three, five years old. And then they get all the way to age 25 or 30. They need a transplant. When it goes well, it's obviously magic. And then when it doesn't go well, you know, there's a lot of remorse and there's guilt and there's frustration with the system. And there's a lot of asking themselves, what if? What if we had done this differently? What if we had done that differently? And it became a very meaningful part of my practice. I don't think you can take care of a transplant patient who's 25 without also taking care of their parents. I think you have to do both. And as, as a parent, I, I learned that. I didn't know that before I had children quite as well. When I had my own children, I really put myself in their place. You know, what if my two daughters you know, were sick? What if one of them needed a transplant? How would I feel? And I think the experience of having my own children changed a lot for me. Yes, for sure. And to me, it was such an eye-opening when I think about all of the families that and how grateful they, they were uh, to you and your team because the best gift you can ever give to anybody is the life, isn't it? It is. And I think the families were really great. I mean, I think that I think they also saw in us how much we cared. And, you know, one of the things as the leader of the team is I had to commit fully, which I I think I did. And I asked the people around me to commit fully as well. And Mm. I think that the parents, for instance, and the family members of the people that we transplanted saw that. I think that they got it. And in fact, I tell some stories in the book about parents wondering how I was doing after a transplant that went badly. You know, instead of worrying about their own kid, which would be natural, they were worried about how I was taking it. And I, I found that unbelievably graceful, you know, to, to really, you know, show how much they cared about, about me and about the team. And I'll never forget it. And in fact, I'm still in contact with many of the parents of the people we transplanted while I was at Stanford because they, they just want to check in, you know, how are you doing? How's life? How are your kids? Um, and those kind of relationships have been very meaningful to me. And I write about that in the book. Yeah, for sure. And that's an important uh, aspect of the human nature, isn't it? And something that you don't always hear. Yeah, I, I think that the one thing I really liked about transplant is we get to know the patients very well. We, mm. we don't have, you know, you know, tens of thousands or even thousands of transplant patients. We have a few hundred at a time. 
And we get to know them well, the patients. We get to know the families well. We get to know a lot about them. We see them frequently. It really, when it works well, it really is a family atmosphere. The team feels like family with each other. And then our our family, our transplant family, takes care of this group of patients who then becomes part of our family. And so when Mm. things work well, that's how it feels to me. And I I think that that's a special part of transplantation is that you get to really know the patients that well. And I'm glad, I'm glad that's a feature of the business because I think it's, I think it's an important feature. So despite, uh quite a few downs and uh, moments and times that, that required a lot of stoicism and uh, um, sort of processing of uh, very bad situations. There was there was a lot of good in it. The, the, your career was long. It was 10 years, wasn't it? And rewarding. Yeah, so I was in it 20 years total. I was at Stanford mm. 11 years. Um, and so my, my work on the front lines of transplant was about 20 years. And you're right. Um, there were a lot of ups and there were, there were some downs. And it's the nature of, of the transplant work. It, you know, it's an up and down field. And I didn't realize how up and how down when I first got in it. But I came to learn about that. And sometimes I handled that well and sometimes not so well. But it was a feature of doing that kind of work for sure. Yeah. So then you decided to step down. Yes. And how did you arrive to this decision? I um I had a lot of I had a lot of concern that I was no longer celebrating when the transplants went well. Instead I was focusing when the transplants did poorly. Mm-hmm. And it became, I think, untenable for me to continue on like that. And I, I had a lot of empathy as a human. I have a lot of empathy for the patients and I was losing. I was I, I kind of ran out of empathy, I think. And I didn't I was, you know, very sleep deprived from doing the work in the middle of the night. Many nights I. I didn't feel well physically. I did not feel well emotionally. I really felt like I, I wasn't doing the best service possible to the patient group I was taking care of. I didn't feel like I was doing the best service possible to the team that I was leading. And so for all those reasons, I wanted to kind of get off of that roller coaster and try to use what I know about transplant in other ways. Mm. And for me, it involved a change of scenery. I moved from California back home to New Orleans. I got into a familiar environment. Um, my kids have ended up happier here, and I'm happier here. And I get to help transplant patients uh, through helping transplant programs. And I write about my experiences and that's that's helped a lot and i knew i knew when it was time it was about 20 years to the day 
And I knew that it was time for me to go in a different direction. And I'm really glad I did. Yes, and I really liked uh, this aspect in your book where you uh, you really kind of point out you need to be honest and you need to be able to recognize the signs that there's a need for change because often we don't uh, really look inwards uh, close enough to recognize it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we in the medical field aren't very good at that. You know, we, we have been taught I was certainly taught just to keep plowing on, just mm. put, your, put your head down, keep working. If there's, if you're feeling down or you're um, not getting the results you want, just work harder. And so that was my, the way I approached my job was just to work harder at it. And I didn't have any other way to deal with it. Yet the harder I worked, actually, I think the worse it became toward the end of my time at Stanford. And it just became um, difficult for my family. I think it became difficult, especially for my wife, because she was mm. seeing me go through, go through this. I think the other important factor was my kids were getting older and they were noticing that I wasn't around very much. And I would miss soccer games and birthday parties and things like that. And I, I didn't want to, I, um, you know, care deeply about my family, my wife and my two daughters. And I was, if I didn't get off that roller coaster, I was going to miss their entire childhood. <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't willing to do that. So for all of those reasons, for me, it was, I had to make a change, but I had to reinvent my purpose in life and what, what, how I was going to approach the field of transplant. I knew I wasn't going to leave transplant because I like it. I love it too much to leave, but I had to go about it a different way. And I think I found them. So what would be your advice to our early career and young listeners about choosing their uh, career path? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been asked that a lot because I'm, mm. I'm as the book's coming out, I'm going to, um, talk to some medical students at various places across the country. And I, and I think that you have to be honest with yourself about what specialty fits in well with your personality type. And I also think that, and I think the younger generation is better at this than, than we were. I think that we didn't even know the phrase work-life balance when I was coming up in the field. But I think the younger generation of physicians and nurses and everyone and scientists, they do understand what that means. And I think they're going to be better off because of it. I, I think that it's just a, a generational change. So my advice would, would be strike that balance, find a field that suits you temperamentally and from a personality standpoint, and stay connected. I think that... I think the lowest moments of my career have been when I was so focused on what I was doing that I was actually being isolated. I was isolated from my friends, from my family, from my work colleagues. And I think isolation is a real problem. I think that the best way to maintain emotional well-being is to stay connected, family, friends, 
work colleagues. And I think that's really important. Oh, that's a great message. And I also got uh, another important question. So did you always enjoy coffee with chicory? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So in, in, I don't know if you're aware, in New Orleans, everyone has coffee and chicory. Um, it's, ah. the stand, it's, it, it's the standard around here. So when I was little, my parents would have coffee and chicory in the house. And so I grew up drinking it. Um, and I, I never went away from it. In fact, wherever I was living, I would have New Orleans coffee delivered to wherever I was so that I could drink the real thing. It's, uh, it's been an important part of my life. Um, I drink a lot less of it than I used to. I used to drink it uh, all morning long, and now I have one cup, and that's it. <laughs> so that must be a sign of age. You know, I can only have one cup or I'll be up all night. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I've always enjoyed it. Oh, that's great. It's a, it's a bit exotic to us uh, here in Europe, but yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, I bet, I bet. I actually love, <laughs> when I travel, I love French coffee um, quite a bit, but I, um, I nothing like coffee and chicory, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what is uh, your current uh, project? Yeah, so what I'm working on now, in addition to doing my transplant consulting work, is I'm actually working on a second book that's going to look at the concept that we've lost trust in our healthcare system. And mm-hmm. I'm, going to po- I'm going to pose the question whether or not we've lost American healthcare exceptionalism because what I'm finding is is that patients don't seem to trust the physicians anymore. The physicians don't trust the hospital they work at. The hospitals don't trust the insurance companies. And it seems like we've lost that thread of trust in the system. And I think the pandemic has exacerbated that loss of trust quite a bit because we've seen the institutions of our public health system, at least in America, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but at least in America, they failed us, I believe. So I'm going to look at it from that lens because I've been, I've been concerned about that for some time. And then I think when COVID-19 came, it really became quite obvious to me that, that we've lost trust in the system. We don't have the kind of faith in it that we used to. So that's the nature of my second book. That sounds really important project. And I'm really hoping that you're going to come uh, talk to us about it when it's ready. I'd be glad to. So where can our listeners find more information about your book, but also your work? So they can go to my website, which is com. That has information on the work that I'm doing the articles that I've written and information, more information about the book. And I think there's also a video that will explain a little bit in more detail about the book itself. So if they go to davidweilmd.com, they'll find everything they need. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been really delightful. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.